America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. A science story, huh? It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. We are your hosts, Aaron Barker and Liz Neely. And this week, we are presenting stories about what we do when things get dark and dangerous. <laughs> well, we planned this weeks Imagine ago. That. <laughs> yeah. The topic has never been quite so relevant. Welcome to our episode on desperate times. Yes, I actually looked out at our podcast calendar for the next few weeks. We have episodes in addition to desperate times, also asking for help, emergency, and what keeps us up at night. <laughs> so- <laughs> This is totally unplanned. (laughs) I just read over those thinking, wow, a little on the nose, Barker. (laughs) A bit. And I mean, like, we can laugh about this because we are doing everything that we can do to take care of everybody right now. And we thought it might be a good idea to update all of you, our listeners, on those plans. Yeah, these past few weeks, we have been in the process of canceling, postponing all of our upcoming shows for March, April, and May. Mm -hmm. Um, What we are going to continue to do is continue to bring you these stories every Friday on the podcast. We've got a great backlog of amazing stories that we can continue to share. We've been transitioning some of our workshops online, and we're going to begin transitioning some shows online soon, too. Exactly. Um, These were not easy decisions for us to make. Not only are we an organization that relies on live events for our own revenues, but a lot of people depend on us as well, our venues, our photographers, sound engineers. Um, The reason we are doing this is because we're a science-driven organization, and we know that one of the most important things that we as an organization and we as individual people can do right now is to socially isolate ourselves. This means not gathering together in groups because what we know about this novel coronavirus that you're hearing a lot about is that it is highly infectious. That means it's easy to spread. It also is much deadlier than the flu. And worst of all, the people that it hits the hardest are those who are already the most vulnerable. If they are elderly or our friends who are immunocompromised. So we want to do everything we can to take care of our community because we know that the best thing we can do right now is to spread cases out over time to help minimize the pressure on hospitals so that patients aren't all flooding in at the same time. Because this coronavirus, when you get sick with it, 
if you get very sick, it requires a long period of care and ventilation and things like that. Yeah, some of the best advice I've seen so far is to basically act as though you already know you have it and you don't want to give it to anyone else. Because the facts are, you could already have it and you wouldn't experience any symptoms for possibly weeks. That's right, two weeks. Um, and even then, maybe the symptoms might be mild, but you can pass it along to others who could then suffer quite a lot. Yeah. So Liz and I are both in cities right now that are enacting policies of uh, social distancing and self-isolation. All the restaurants and bars and movie theaters are closed here in New York today and for the rest of the week. Similar here in D.C. That's right. And just in case you're not sort of hearing this in other channels, we're anticipating that this is not just going to be a few days or even a couple of weeks. Right now, the CDC has advised um, ending all gatherings of 50 or more people for the next eight weeks. So we're thinking this is going to be all through the spring and into early summer that we're impacted. We know this is a really hard time for a lot of people, and, and our hearts are really with you all right now. And, and we just want to continue being able to connect with you all uh, through stories, through our podcast every Friday. And tonight we are going to hold actually our first ever online show. So we would <laughs> That's right, love innovating. to see you there. That's right. <laughs> We're adapting and responding. Uh, so if you check out our social media, our website, you can uh, join us tonight for our first ever online show. We would love to see you there. Exactly. So stories are what we do best, and they're how we make sense of this world and inspire each other to keep on going. So join us for that, or just keep listening. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And speaking of which, you ready to introduce our first story today? I am. Our first story is from Leah Waters. It was recorded in November 2019 at Wild Detectives Bookstore in Dallas, Texas. The theme of that night was gratitude. I was sitting on my couch wearing pajamas one day in February when my friend Alyssa sent me a message that a former student of hers needed a kidney. She, her name was Neelam, and Neelam is the name that I'd heard before, but I've never met her. I knew she was a rock star high school journalist, a talented writer. Um, my friend Alyssa said that Neelam got sick over Christmas break, and she was hospitalized with really high blood pressure, and then they had discovered that an autoimmune disease had killed her kidneys. And so I close out of Amazon and open up Google, and I search for IgA nephropathy or Berger's disease, which is Neelam's condition. And <clears throat> then I open up a new tab after Alyssa sent me information on how to be a donor for the Medical City Fort Worth's Transplant Institute. And Honestly, I didn't know why I felt so compelled to help this girl other than the fact that I knew she was suffering and I knew if I didn't help her, I don't know what would happen. And so I filled out the form that night just to see if I would be a match. And it turns out later that I was. And so the next few weeks were spent in donor education and evaluation. And I had blood and urine tests, x-rays, EKGs, things like that. And I also had to sit down with the social worker so that they could evaluate my mental wellness. And she asked me, have you ever had suicidal thoughts or actions? And I said, no, without hesitation. 
And I think a part of me must have known that if I had said yes or hesitated in some way, they never would have let me give my kidney to Neelam. And at that point, I didn't want anything to stop me. So I didn't want anything, including the fact that I had to collect my urine for 24 hours. This is my joke. <laughs> it gets better. Um, so, and I didn't want to wait for the long weekend. Uh, so I took this jug to work with me. <laughs> and I would go to the bathroom and I'd pee in the jug. And I put it in a brown paper sack and I folded it and I wrote, Leah's lunch, do not eat. <laughs> and I would walk down the hall to our shared refrigerator and I'd put it in there and <laughs> just pray no one opened it. Um, and then I do that several times a day <clears throat> and just chit chat with my colleagues with my day's bladder contents in my hand. <clears throat> and so that was the last step before the committee cleared me to be her donor which they did the next day, and I was so excited. And so I sent Neelam an email right then that there was a stranger who had a kidney with her name on it. About a week after that, Neelam and I met. We shook hands inside her parents' home in McKinney. We were sitting on the couch, making small talks, smiling naturally, but it all felt very polite and forced, and it felt like if anyone spoke too quickly or too wrongly, that this whole thing would fall apart. So I just started rambling, and I talked about how I first heard about Neelam's condition and what my medical test showed and things like that, but we didn't talk too much about the surgery. We talked mostly about our love of journalism, mutual friends, petty gossip, Game of Thrones, but I could still see this stress in her parents' eyes. And I mean, they must have thought I was crazy. <laughs> and at the very least naive about the consequences of my decision. But I knew that even if I were crazy, she was still getting a kidney. <laughs> so four days later, we were sitting side by side in our rolling hospital beds. We had IVs in our arms. There was a white curtain that hung between us, and, and I asked the nurse if she could pull it back because I wanted to see her, and I wanted to show her that I was there. I wasn't going anywhere. So the curtain opened, and my breath kind of caught, and my stomach dropped the way it does when on when you're a roller coaster right before the fall. And she gave me a shaky thumbs up, and her mom held her hand, and her dad stood over her. And I did not see the smart, passionate young woman who loved to tell stories or hang out with her friends or eat a bag of chips whenever she wanted. I saw a girl who spent the last six weeks learning to be a person with an incurable disease. Six weeks of sleepless nights, panic attacks, constant hunger, weight gain, mood swings. And it felt like the longest six weeks of my life because I knew it was the most helpless six weeks of hers. So we were sitting in the beds in our matching blue and white gowns minutes before surgery. And I told her something that I wanted to believe, but I couldn't guarantee. I said, it's all going to be okay. It took surgeons an hour and a half to take out my kidney. Neelam's surgery took three hours, and before surgery, she had 9% kidney function. After, 
It was at 98%. And after I woke up from surgery, I was just so relieved that she was doing better. So the next day I went home and he, I was healing and I felt happy and hopeful. And a couple of weeks after surgery, a friend who could not fathom why anyone would possibly do this and give a kidney to a stranger asked me why I had done it. And honestly, I hesitated because I never asked myself why, I just did it. But now, a few weeks post-transplant, that's all I thought about. So when my doctors finally cleared me to go back to work, I was relieved that I could just get back to normal. (laughs) But normal never came. I was tired all the time, but I struggled to sleep. I knew I should be eating better, but I had no appetite. I stopped returning phone calls and I stopped paying bills on time or giving timely feedback to my students or reading books weekly or cooking, making cookies, anything that I would normally do. And I had never felt so helpless in my entire life. Except that that wasn't quite true. This feeling that I had, it felt familiar. And it came from a time from before the surgery, from a time when I had needed help. People don't like to ask for help, I've discovered. The help that we need, these are the things that sit on a shelf in our mind. And they're pushed back by the present until you just nearly forget they're there. They're things that are dark and unspeakable, and they'll follow you to your grave if you let them. When I was 16, I started collecting pills. When things would get bad, I would drop a few more into the melatonin bottle that I would fill with over-the-counter painkillers I'd siphon off from my parents without raising suspicion. And one day, when my stupid teenage brain could find no other escape, I felt relief knowing that I had that bottle tucked under my bed. And that day when I reached for it, I I could not have told you why. It just would not have made sense to a rational mind. But later that night, I felt this clawing pain in my stomach and my screams woke my parents up. And I remember rolling on the ground like I was on fire. And I cried over and over again, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I crawled into the bathroom and I hugged the toilet (laughs) and I emptied my insides into it. My parents were frantic and pacing and I called poison control. And soon I think they realized I would not die after all. And they left me alone then. And I remember I put my cheek against the cold tile and I fell asleep and I didn't wake up again until they told me it was time to go to school. So I got up and dressed and I rode to school and I walked to class in a daze. It was my 17th birthday. So my shelves are unbearably heavy sometimes. (laughs) But I've learned something that's healing. Every once in a while, I'll take down these things from my shelf and I'll call them by name and I'll say, this is my anxiety. This is my depression. (laughs) 
I'll tell that to my friends and my family whose things look a lot like mine. So day by day, after the surgery, the more I shared with my family and friends, the better that I felt, the more I talked about it. And I, I realized I wanted to talk with Neelam. And so about a month after our surgeries that left us both with one healthy kidneys, we sat in her kitchen barefoot, drinking chai. We ate pizza and we talked about our incision pain and how it still hurt when we laughed or sneezed sometimes and how she was going stir crazy with her post-transplant house arrest. We had developed a friendship over the past month and I really wanted to see for myself that she was really doing better. And my family and friends said I didn't know her a friendship. And I told them I didn't know her a kidney either, but I gave it anyway. Um, and I was also there because I wanted to explain to her why I had given her a kidney. I told her it felt like there was this kid out there in the ocean drowning. And there I was. I was the only one on the shore at the time. And um, that someone might have come along eventually, maybe. But if everyone thought that way, a kid could drown before someone could get to them. And I was also there because I wanted to tell her about my shelf and the things that I hid there. Because during those dark times after my surgery, <laughs> I was really afraid that the girl who ate pills and the woman who appeared over bridges wanted to help people, not because they needed it, but because I needed it, because I wanted to prove my life was worth something. So we leaned our heads close together and I whispered to her about a 16-year-old girl who needed help and never asked for it. I told her about how hard it is to talk about things that terrify and shame you. And then she said something that should have surprised me but didn't. She said, it's funny you're saying all this because me too. <laughs> and we laughed and cried a little bit. And she told me about the things on her shelf things that look like mine and others that were completely her own. We spent our time that night talking about her health and mine. I had good days where I felt like myself again. Um, and then I had days where dark thoughts sat in a corner, quiet but alive. We talked about our futures and our friendships. But mostly, we talked into the night about stories, the ones we loved and the ones we hated, the ones we hoped to write someday, stories about people with shelves, stories about people who need help and yet can offer it too. Thank you. That was Leah Waters. Leah is a multi-platform editor at the Dallas Morning News, and she also advises journalism programs at Frisco Heritage High School. She received her master's in journalism from the University of North Texas Mayborn School of Journalism in 2017. She also majored in journalism at Angelo State University in 2010, where she was the campus newspaper's editor-in-chief. 
Leah currently serves as the Texas Association of Journalism's Educators State Director and as a Vice President of the Association of Texas Photography Instructors. She is a First Amendment advocate and testified this session in support of a bill that would restore student press rights in Texas. That's awesome. I love this story from Leah. It's so powerful. Mm -hmm. It really is. Erin, this week... What kind of stories do you have to recommend for us to listen to during difficult times? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Difficult times. Can't imagine. Uh, So for me, when I'm going through something tough, I always like to listen to funny stories. It's kind of escape for a while Mm. and laugh. And so I would recommend uh, we have a playlist of funny stories that we'll share on our social media. I think one in particular that really stands out to me is the one from Aditi Nadkarni that she told a few years ago about uh, basically creating a huge disaster in her laugh while she was trying to impress everyone as a graduate student. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> And also, you know, any stories by uh, Gastor Almonte. Who uh, among us? <laughs> a producer on our team, an amazing comedian. I would actually just go buy his album on iTunes, Immigrant Made. It's amazing. It's funny in a very warm and comforting way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the very best. Oh, yeah. What about you, Liz? What do you turn to? Oh, um, I am sorry to report I go 100% the opposite direction. <laughs> I'm shocked. (laughs) I know. Even in the best of times, I read a ton of post-apocalyptic fiction. Um, And I have to admit, (laughs) in the past couple of weeks, I've been returning to Octavia Butler's like Parable of the Sower. Um, I also just finished (laughs) Ling Ma's Severance, which was amazing. (laughs) Um, But... For those of you not interested in going quite that dark with me, uh, I would (laughs) love to recommend um, a book, a new book that's just coming out right now by Sarah Ramey. It's called The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness, a memoir. Um, Full disclosure, Sarah is a friend, but this is an incredible piece. It's all about her own journey of going through terrible symptoms and being gaslit by her doctors trying to figure out what was happening to her. Yeah, an important topic that really hits home for me, but also Sarah's just a really wonderful writer, and she really brings you into her story. She was going to tell a story at our 10th anniversary show in May before we had to cancel it these past weeks. We hope to, of course, have her back when things are up and running again, but in this way, you can read her story now that you can't see it at our show. So I would would really recommend that one as well. Yeah, and I also just feel like Keep an eye out for any book by an author being released these next few weeks. This is, it's hard enough to write a book in the first place, but then to release it when people are paying attention to everything, but it's tough. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of book events canceled and everything, so... Let's all let's all spend all this time reading and listening to podcasts. <laughs> I would love to hear another story, Erin. <laughs> well, I have one for you. <laughs> Look how natural that was. Yeah. <laughs> Our next story today is from Narissa Spies. It was recorded in November 2019 at Hawaiian Bryans in Honolulu, Hawaii. This show is presented in partnership with SACNIS, the Society for the Advancement of Chicano, Hispanic, and Native Americans in Science, at their annual conference. We are really grateful to the Tiffany & Co. Foundation as well for their support of stories like Narissa's. Growing up in Hawaii, 
the ocean was my background and it was my sanctuary. Um, I close my eyes now and I can still smell the briny sea. I can taste the salt in the air and I especially remember hearing the waves crashing and the beautiful creatures um, that, I, that I'd, I'd see in the tide pools. And um, seeing these things every day, because I spent nearly every day at the shoreline as a child, um, they really sparked my fascination with science and sort of led me on this path. My absolute favorite place in the world is a place called Puaco. Um, it's my ocean backyard, really. And Puaco has some beautiful beaches, but the best thing about Puaco is underwater. And all you need to experience that is a snorkel and a sense of adventure. Places like this in Hawaii are what pushed me into a path uh, towards science. And I began a bachelor's degree in biology and anthropology. Um, and I immediately started a master's degree studying coral reef health and genetics. I absolutely loved collecting data. I loved the science. I loved doing and I loved being hands-on and in the field. But what I absolutely hated was the talking. I hated going to scientific conferences. I would look at my notes and I would not look up for fear of connecting with eyes in the audience. I felt that I should let the experts have the say while I lost myself beneath the waves. So rather than pushing my voice out there, I let others speak. And what I did instead was push through to my, my education on my own path. And I pursued a PhD. So the Kiwalo Marine Lab is actually here in Honolulu, and that was my home for most of my, my PhD work. Um, it's not too far from here, and there's a spot on the shoreline where if you close your eyes and sit right along the break wall, the waves crashing will completely drown out the kind of roar of the city, the sirens, and, and the noise, and it just allows you to be at peace with the sea. I spent an obscene amount of time in the tanks at Kiwala Marine Lab uh, taking care of my corals. And I got really close with them. Um, I actually had coral colonies, some of which I even gave names to, treated them like pets. Um, Latasha was my first coral colony. <laughs> Big Mama produced the most coral larvae. They strongly preferred Hawaiian music over rock music. And it, with the proper soundtrack, they'd produce more larvae. Life was really, really good. And I was enjoying my time at the marine lab. It was sort of a com comfortable sanctuary for me. Um, and then in 2014, something happened. Um, the seawater temperature in our tanks started to increase. And my coral colonies started to turn pale. And then they bleached white. Um, Hawaii was in the midst of, of a coral bleaching event. So coral bleaching happens when a coral gets really stressed out, like if the temperature in the water gets too warm. Um, they spit out these algae that live inside of them that also make most of their food. And if the stress stays around for too long, the corals eventually starve to death. Corals are they are really cool. They're amazing animals. Um, 
you know, they don't lick your face or wag their tails, but they are animals like us. And they react to light the same way as us. Um, they even have skeletons similar to ours, which is pretty cool. And an interesting thing about them is they make up less than 0.1% of the entire ocean floor, but they support a quarter of all life in the ocean. And here in Hawaii, we know how important they are because they break up wave energy. They allow us to have those really nice surf breaks. And more importantly, they keep our shorelines from eroding away. So 2014, bleaching event ended. But in 2015, we got hit with another bleaching event. I was actually headed out to a study site on a boat, and I leaned over the edge, and I saw nothing but stark white colonies below me. I knew it was going to be really, really bad. The most difficult part for me, I had a strong connection to the ocean, but it shocked me how few people in Hawaii had that same connection with the sea. It actually shocked me even more how few of them knew how to swim on an island. They didn't realize that in their own backyards, the ocean was collapsing right under their noses. In 2015, the second bleaching event, Hawaii lost a third of their corals. And I was hit pretty hard as a coral biologist. Certain areas of Hawaii were hit harder than others. Um, my ocean backyard, Puako, lost 90% of its corals. And I was absolutely devastated. It took me two years before I had the nerve to go back to Puako. And I could not get in the water. And actually, to date, I haven't been in the water. But what I saw from the shoreline shook me. The water smelled funny. It was slimy and there were globs of algae everywhere. I lost my backyard and I refused to let it happen again. I felt an urgency like I'd never felt before. The ocean could not wait for me to find my voice and I needed to do something so that my kids wouldn't read about coral reefs in history books. In 2016, um, I got asked to work on a white paper describing the biological and cultural significance of a place called Papahanao Mokuakea. Um, it's a marine monument. It's about, uh, so after the main Hawaiian islands you've seen on the map, the islands actually extend another thousand miles. Um, and it's an incredible place. It's got the highest rate of endemism anywhere in the world. So that means uh, something that's found there and nowhere else. Half of the animals and plants in Papahanaumokuakea are found there and nowhere else. So if they're lost there, they're lost to the world forever. I worked um, sort of behind the scenes on, on that white paper, and I was really proud of that because it was a way for me to sort of dip my toe in the water uh, but still kind of keep my voice behind the scenes. <laughs> Then I worked with a group asking President Obama to expand the monument and make it uh, extend rather than 50 miles offshore to 200 miles offshore. I work with a really amazing group of people. And uh, 
before President Obama left his uh, his office in 2000 and, um, 18? 16. Time flies and you're having fun. <laughs> he expanded the monument, making it the largest protected area on the planet. And I was elated. I thought, man, we are finally on the right track here, you know, towards towards conservation, towards protecting our ocean. Um, a personal high for me was I actually got to meet my ocean hero, Dr. Sylvia Earle, uh, when she came to the uh, IUCN World Conservation Congress in Honolulu. And um, she was actually also a co-author on the white paper that I had helped to write. And when she found out that I had worked on the expansion project, she dropped my hand, her hands, my hands that she was holding, and she embraced me. She gave me the, the warmest hug. <laughs> and it felt just like my grandmother would have hugged me. And I realized that to her, I was an ocean hero. And it made me really proud of what a group of people with a shared vision of ocean protections could do. About a year after that, I was in the marine lab, my comfortable space again, and I got a Facebook message. I was setting up an experiment in my lab, and I got a Facebook message from a colleague. And he said, hey, what are you doing next week? You want to come to New York and give a talk? I'm like, all right. I've never been to New York before. That sounds like a good idea. It was also the same weekend uh, as the March for Science. So I was really excited. I was like, yeah, climate change, we're going to do something about it. And everyone was really excited about supporting science. And on Monday morning, I was on a conference call to find out more about this really cool speaking engagement my friend had told me about. And I found out that I'd be speaking at the United Nations. As the most nervous I've ever been in my entire life, <laughs> by far. I had about 48 hours to write my speech and get to New York. And I was like, this is, I can do this. This is great. I'll be fine. And I get home and sit down to start writing my speech, and it hits me. First of all, I couldn't procrastinate, as grad students tend to do. And I also realized that I had to go beyond just speaking about science, because this was a different audience that I had to really make a connection with these policymakers so that they would get it. I made my way to New York in that, in that 48 hours, and I was thinking about Papahanaumokuakea. I was in my hotel room, and I was trying to clear my mind, get out of my own head. And I turned on the TV as background noise, and I saw President Trump on TV. And he was surrounded by other leaders from the Pacific. And he was announcing that some monuments were being called under review, including all marine monuments. And that was another punch to the gut for me. How was I supposed to convince these leaders at the United Nations that we needed to protect our oceans when the leader of our country didn't even think they needed protections? I made it to the UN and I started my speech. Marine protected areas are a crucial part of marine conservation. And I continued through that speech without a hitch. I didn't freeze up, I didn't forget my speech. <laughs> and what I noticed when I looked at the faces in the crowd that were all nodding along in agreement with things that I was saying is a lot of their faces looked a lot like mine. They were Pacific Islanders, a lot of them, just like me. 
and they had connections to the ocean just like me. And one thing that sort of helped me focus when I was sitting there in a room full of leaders, scared out of my wits, was looking down in my hand at the picture that I had. And it was a picture of my niece. She loves the ocean as, just as much as I do. And I realized that I, I wasn't trying to save the ocean for all of humanity. I was just trying to save them for her, for her children, so that she would grow up with an ocean backyard just like I did. And today I'm, I'm still introverted. I'd rather have teeth pulled than speak in front of audiences. But I also recognize that I have an intergenerational responsibility. And like I said earlier, the ocean can't wait for me to find my voice. I think us as scientists, we need to get beyond just collecting data, publishing it in a scientific journal, where only other scientists will read it. We need to have emotions about our work. And we need to communicate that to people so that they will know what is happening on our planet. We need to find our voice and communicate what we know best. We need to share the burden by presenting at the UN those people in the room. It's sort of like passing the torch. It's sharing the burden. It's not the entire problem on your shoulders anymore. And with a shared common goal of marine conservation, we're going to make really good changes. And so that's the entirety of why I'm here tonight, to sort of share the burden and know that I can have emotions about my work, and I should be sharing those. Because if I'm not and I just publish them in a scientific journal where only other scientists are going to seek them out, they're going to disappear beneath the waves like bleached corals. And that's the entirety of why I'm here tonight, for my family and for my future children, so that they can grow up with an ocean backyard just like I did. Thank you. That was Narissa Spies. Narissa is a native Hawaiian scientist who was born and raised on the island of Hawaii. She received her bachelor and master's degrees from the University of Hawaii at Hilo and is in the process of completing her PhD this semester at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She has previously worked as a researcher, curriculum developer, and educator, and has a passion for marine conservation, in case you couldn't tell from her story. <laughs> in her current position, she is on a team that manages ecological services on Oahu, Kauai, American Samoa, and Papahanaumoku, Akea. We are so grateful to Leah and to Narissa for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also incredibly grateful to have the support of foundations like Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And me, Executive Director Liz Neely. We couldn't do it without the help of our Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, our Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, <laughs> Gastor Almonte, Anna Kuchman, and Aparna Kumar. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, Jun Chen and Gwen Hogan. 
You might notice a name missing there because we are wishing a very fond farewell to our former senior podcast editor, Zoe Saunders, who's moving on to a big job at CNN. Woo, go Zoe. We're going to miss you, lady. The theme music is by Ghost. And special thanks to Wild Detectives and Hawaiian Bryans for hosting these shows. And uh, thank you to everyone out there who has faced desperate times and for all of those ahead. Be courageous, be kind. Thanks for everything you do. Yeah, thanks for listening. And we'll be here every Friday. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash prenatal.